1 Corinthians 15, and the passage, chapter 15, is meant to answer questions. Uh, the questions have come up with the Corinthians about the resurrection. And uh, some of them were kind of uh, a little bit, well, we don't know if there really was a real resurrection, which kind of got under Paul's skin a little bit. And he's going to address that more as we continue. But he says to him, well, if you want to be ignorant, go ahead and be ignorant. That's your choice. Just pretend like it didn't happen. He's going to address that more because uh, he says he went through what we would call a, a, a logical uh, series of uh, ideas. And the logical was, okay, if we assume that Christ did not rise from the dead, then he goes on, then, of course, uh, there is no forgiveness. There is nothing for you to have. And if we're Christians, we're the biggest idiots anywhere. He says, if you think Christ is not risen from the dead, because we're following something that a dead man uh, taught, and we shouldn't be doing it. But he says, if he did rise from the dead and became the first fruit to those who died, that is, the first person ever to rise from the dead in this particular way is Christ. He, the first fruits belong to Christ. And so he's going to go on to talk more about their questions because they had other questions that they put to him about the resurrection too. We kind of were on a high point when we finished because he talked about Jesus Christ coming into the world, taking a human form. And he did it so that he could die because God couldn't die. And the only way anybody was going to die in our place was if a part of the Godhead, God the Son, came down and became human. Then it was possible as a human that he could die. And so he comes down and God says everything now is under him. And he is the absolute authority and power in heaven. And then there comes a day when the end of time comes. When the end of time arrives, he says, the last enemy destroyed is death. That's the last problem he, he finishes. That is, nobody will ever die again. And those of us who have died already will be resurrected. And he says, at that point, everything is finished, all the work, which was come down, die for the race, uh, redeem the race, pay for their sins, and then return back to heaven and finish your reign by destroying all your enemies. He says, the last enemy is death. And then Jesus steps back into the triune God. He stepped out. It was always God, but he stepped out, took human form. He said he will step back into the Trinity, and then the Trinity will be the absolute ruler. And so that's a lot of uh, uh, thinking to do. And remember that as we continue. It's a powerful thing. And uh, as far as I know, that's the only scripture that really explains that. And so... If Paul is describing to us what God is going to actually do 
at the end of time, where did he get the information? He didn't scratch it out of his head. It came straight from God. And God said, hey, Paul, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to reign and rule and I will finally finish the work, which is to destroy death. And then I'm stepping back into the Trinity. Came right from God. And so when these guys are questioning Paul, saying, well, how can you say Jesus rose from the dead? Don't mess with Paul. Don't mess with him. Remember, he went to the third heaven. Now, you want to know what that is. So do I. I want to know what it is, too. I don't know what he means, but it's apparent that God said, I'm going to take you up high, and I'm going to show you a few things. And so he took him in his spirit somewhere up into what was called the third heaven, and there he showed him things, and he said, you're not allowed to tell what I said, what we saw. And so uh, he's extremely privileged He's been extremely privileged to see things, and, and, and God tells him things. Just like he says, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. How does he know? Because he took him there somehow. He says, I received of the Lord, and he got to apparently watch or have totally explained to him what happened on that night. And so... God has been doing special things for him all along, and he's really, uh, we're talking about somebody that really knows God. And so when they come up, they well, what do you mean Christ rose from the dead? We're not sure that that happened. Don't, don't tell Paul that, all right? He's going to nail that coffin shut with you in it, all right? He is not going to put up with that. And so... Uh, he is, we ended in verse 28, 15, 28. When all things shall be subdued unto him, and shall the Son also put himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. All right, so everything is completed. The work of creation is done. The work of redemption is done. Uh, the work of the destruction of the nature of sin in the world is done. So that's gone. Death is gone. That's why death got here, because of sin. So he's wiped out all the effects of sin on a human race. And then he returns to the Godhead. All right. <clears throat> now, He's still talking about the resurrection. In verse 29, he says something that's got everybody scratching their head. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are you then baptized for the dead? And that rings a little bell in your mind. I, said, I didn't know I could be baptized for the dead. As far as I know, you can't be baptized for the dead. However, there are even people today who believe that you can be baptized for the dead. Or in other words, if grandma and grandpa died and, and didn't do what they were supposed to do by getting baptized, then you can step in and be baptized in their stead. I would not put any trust and confidence in that statement doesn't mean that it didn't exist. And when he mentions it here, he's trying to say, look, you guys in Corinth 
baptized for the dead. Now, if I was going to trust somebody, I wouldn't trust the Corinthian church. (laughs) Their services are chaotic, and they're grasping at straws, trying to figure things out. And although they loved the Lord, they were very uninformed. We've just been through 14 chapters where they made so many errors as a church. And so he says, you guys baptize for the dead, and if there's no resurrection, why do you bother? If you really believe that there is no resurrection, who cares? They're all dead anyway. So are you. So why bother? And uh, I think it's probably something that came along because people started to say, well, you know, we're accepting this new truth about Jesus Christ that he came and died, and we wish Grandma had known, Grandpa. And so they said, we We'll get ourselves baptized in their name. Now, there are still many, many people who do that today. And the particular group that I have in mind is the Mormon church. Mormon church is baptized for the dead. You wonder, well, how come the Mormon church have all the genealogies? That's why. You know, you say, well, you can go online and you can trace your genealogy through the Mormon church way back to whatever. That's what they're doing. They're not just doing it to, hey, I'd like you to meet your great-grandfather. They could care less about that. What they're interested in is finding their own great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather or whatever, and then say, uh, we're going to be baptized for them into the Mormon faith so they will all become Mormons. All right, that's what they're doing. All right, and so... When people go on the website, uh, you understand that's what it's all about. And the very nature of baptism, then, is that we have a responsibility to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. And there's a public display of your inward faith. All right? So you believe in Jesus in your heart, and Jesus said, then get baptized. Stand up and tell people. Prove it. Prove it by your action. And so uh, you can't prove by you being baptized that your grandma was okay. All right? That doesn't work that way. It's specifically meant as a personal responsibility that we have to be baptized because Jesus said to. And that's it. And in the structure of religious uh, things that Jesus left behind, there's almost nothing. It was all a matter of the heart. But he did say two things. Number one, you get baptized. I want you to be baptized. And then the other thing is you take communion. I want you to take communion. So those two things are what he said to do. Of course, baptize what? I stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. And the second one is take communion and you say, thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul, dying for me. This doing remembrance of what I did for you. And those are the two public things that Jesus said to do. And so uh, when you read it here, uh, it appears to me that what's happened 
is these people have done that. They say, well, we want our grandparents to be saved, so we'll be baptized for them. He doesn't say much anywhere else about this anywhere. As a matter of fact, this may be the only spot in the Bible where being baptized for the dead is mentioned, and it appears to be because that's what they're doing. That's what they've come up with. All right, Very same reason that the uh, Mormons do it, very same reason they do it is to turn those people back there uh, into Mormons, and they're registered now on the Mormon uh, list as being Mormons. And you know that that's a crock of baloney. Okay? That's, that's, that's not anything at all. Okay? So uh, he does mention it here. I, mean, I said because this church was following that idea and they may have had a noble thought in their mind. We want to help our grandparents be saved, but that can't happen. You can't do that. All right. Okay, verse 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? All right, here's another reason. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and then uh, why would I uh, put my life on the line day after day after day? He says, I stand in jeopardy every hour. He wasn't kidding. He if you ever look at the list of what happened to him, I mean, he was stoned and left for dead. He was beaten with rods, which is they beat you with a stick 39 times because they were being merciful. Because if they said, well, if we hit him 40 times, it's a little overboard. So we'll just hit him 39 times. That was the Jewish thinking. They beat him with rods three times. He's shipwrecked, uh, spends a night in the deep, uh, they're hauling him here and there to prison. And of course, he ends up uh, appealing to Caesar and he ends up in uh, Rome. And we believe that there they cut his head off. So he said, every day I stand up and fight for this faith. Verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I die daily. This is a, quite a thing to say. I die daily. And some people say, well, we all die daily, right? We're all dying a little bit every day. No. <laughs> well, we are. Okay, we are. We're all getting older and closer and closer to the time when our life will be over. But I don't believe that's what he's talking here at all. He says, I die daily. That is, when I get up, and I'm going to serve God today. Uh, sometimes it's going to put me in jeopardy. And if you read through the book of Acts, it's amazing what happened. He was in the middle of uh, chaos. He goes to Ephesus, and the people start screaming, Great is Diana, goddess of Ephesus. And they got a regular riot. They scream for two hours straight. Because Paul showed up in town. I mean, he's, his life is crazy. They let him out of, the, of a wall, over the wall in a basket, trying to save his life. Because they were coming to get him. And they said, well, here, here's a basket. We'll tie a rope to him. You get over the wall see if you get away. And he did get away. And a lot of things happened. So every day, he says, I make a choice. I make a decision every day. 
what shall I do today? I'm going to do whatever the Lord wants me to do. And it means that I'm in jeopardy every day. And instead of me saying, what do I feel like doing today? It's Monday. I don't have to do whatever. I can do whatever I want today. He never says that. He always says, what's the will of God for me today? And no matter what it is, he does it and it puts him in jeopardy. He says in verse 32, if after the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantages is me if the dead rise not? And at Ephesus was where that big riot happened. It was insane. They screamed and yelled and wanted to tear everybody apart. And finally, somebody said, you guys are all going to be under arrest by the Roman Empire if you don't shut up and quit screaming. And somebody finally got a hold of it and stopped it. Paul said, let me go out. I'll talk to him. And they said, you're going to die. You go out there. You're not going to live through this. And so they held him back and didn't let him go speak. He said, so I was like fighting with wild animals uh, in Ephesus. It was insane. This riot, it was a whole city turned into a riot. And he says, I lived that in my life and I stood up for Jesus Christ and I never said, you know what, I'm not going to... do that the day it's dangerous. I did it anyway. And he paid and paid and paid over and over. So every day when he had a decision, shall I do what I want or shall I do what God wants, always was, I do what God wants. Always, always, always. I die daily. And we'd all be better if we could really say, when every decision comes up, what will you do today? I do what God wants. I always do. And so, therefore, I die a little. What am, I, what am I doing? I'm trying to kill my selfish nature. And I'm killing it a little every day. And my own desires, my own will, what I feel like, I'm going to kill it and shrink it and shrink it. And that's how you kill it. You never give it any food. Keep it starving. Keep it starving. And so that's what he did. He said, would I do that and be in danger every single day if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? No, what he says here is let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. (laughs) He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's have a great big old party. We're going to die and it won't matter anyway. We won't be resurrected. So uh, he's being uh, facetious. He says, okay, I'm a fool. I stand up for Jesus. You're a fool. You get baptized for your relatives. uh, And we might as well have a big party and tomorrow it's all over. Who cares if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead? Now, of course, he's already said, we know he did. And so your philosophy that you're following is really off. And now here we go. It gives it to him right between the eyes. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. What he's saying here is that your willingness to talk about this and to ask me these questions, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Where did you get those ideas? Well, you were talking with people in Corinth, businessmen or whoever it was that you knew, 
you were talking with them and they shook their heads. <laughs> you don't really believe that, do you? You really think some guy rose from the dead? I mean, come on. And they kind of begin to believe it. And he says, evil communications or your discussion with these people about their doubts begin to kind of eat you up. And you started to half believe it. And he said, so evil communications, you discussed it with people who didn't know and mostly didn't care. You discussed it with them and it's affecting your good manners. That is, your behavior now is anti-God. You come and say, well, Jesus, I don't know. Paul, you really think Jesus rose from the dead? So he says, awake to righteousness and sin not. So you've got to stop this constant discussion that you're having with people all around you about how much they doubt the resurrection. He says, you need to wake up, accept what's true, quit doing that. And here we go. Here's why. For some have not the knowledge of God. There are people who don't know anything about God. They'll give you their opinions. Well, here's what I think about God. How do you know? What evidence did you look up? How did you research it? Or is it just a thought hanging in your mind? Yeah, that's all it is. I don't want to deal with God. I just say he's not there. And that's the way it is. He said, so you're discussing the most important truth, Jesus resurrected from the dead, with people who don't even have any knowledge about God. And he says, as a matter of fact, he says, how do you expect to learn anything? It's, it's corrupting your own morals. And he says, I speak this to your shame. Shame on you. Shame on you. If you want to know about God, you write, go get in this book and find out about God. You listen to people who can tell you about God. He says, so shame on you. You're looking for uh, truth for people who have no concept of God, whatever. And so that's important. We need to, if we're going to inform ourselves correctly and not end up on some who knows what avenue of crazy truth, then we stick with the ones who know who know about God and where they get that information through the Holy Spirit opening up the Bible. So he says, shame on you. Shame on you that you're asking these questions. All right, next question. They got another one. All right. <laughs> and this one, uh, he will explain and explain and explain and explain. And it's, it's, this one's a little different. So here we go. Let's see where we are. Verse 35. But some man will ask, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Now, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except to die. So they're thinking to the, themselves, all right, when this resurrection happens at the end of time, when we rise from the dead, what are we going to be like? The only thing we know is this. We know how this works or not works so well. We know its limitations. We know a lot about it. And is this what we're going to do for the rest of time? Are we going to have this type of human body 
All right, he says, verse 36, don't be foolish. What thou sowest is not quicken except to die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that may shall be but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. God giveth it a body as it pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All right, so he says when you get a kernel of wheat and you stick it in the ground, what happens to it? It dies. It ceases to be. And it grows. And so what sticks up? One kernel of wheat? That's what you put in, right? No. He says an entirely different thing. So he says when you plant something in the ground, you expect it to die. And it will come back much better, much different. He says so when you're sowing a grain of wheat, you can expect what comes to be not just one little grain of wheat or we'd never get anywhere, would we? It changes after it dies. And it grows into a whole plant. And if you know anything about wheat, uh, you understand that wheat grows up not just one plant, but they branch off and they branch off again. And you may get 10 or 12 plants from one seed if the soil is good. That's what happened down here. I talked to Alvin Smith when he was alive about this old nasty soil down that field. He said, they call it nasty. He said, but boy, does it grow wheat. I get 10, 12 plants for every kernel. He said, so I get extremely more than the one kernel I put in. And that's what Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying here. uh, You want to know? Well, don't expect it to be just like it was when you planted it. So when we plant our bodies down in the ground and we say, whew, that old thing, who wants that again? It's not going to be that. That comes up later. And so there's this first argument. Here's the next argument. (coughs) Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. And you all know that when you sit down and you want a steak, you don't want somebody bringing a hunk of fish. I want a steak. Why? Because I like it better. Or maybe you like fish. So they bring you chicken. You say, I don't want chicken. I want fish. Because we know that all those things are different. And he said, human flesh is not the same as animal flesh. And animal flesh is not the same as the flesh of a fish or the flesh of a bird. So we understand that God made a whole series of different kinds of flesh or muscle and body. And he was able to make this wide range of things. And even in animals, everything tastes different. I remember hunting with my brother in Montana. And he said, you want to shoot some sage grouse? And I said, yeah, let's go. So we went and I shot eight sage grouse. Bang, 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 just like that. And I said, boy, this is great. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give them to you. and You take them home and eat them. I said, okay, I will. I'll take them all. So I got them, took them home, put them in the pan, cooked them and cooked them and cooked them and cooked them. And it was like eating your shoe. It was so tough and so nasty. So I called him up. I said, so what? Uh, I tried that stuff. He said, ha ha, that's why I gave him to you. Because every kind of flesh is different. And that flesh from a sage grouse is horrible. Nobody out here eats it. 
but I figured you would. I said, well, I tried, but I couldn't get it apart. It's horrible meat. All right, so in every flesh, God's made different things, okay? And so we know that God is able to make something different for any kind of living thing. That's another argument. So the first one, seed in the ground, comes up different. Another thing, you look across all the flesh, all the bodies that God has made, and they're all different. All right, verse 40, there are celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. And so you look up in the sky and you see the sun, or at night you see the moon, and then over there somewhere you can see Jupiter or whatever it is. You can see those things, he says, and it is clear to you that they're not the same. They're different. 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So he said God created the sun, and it's much uh, stronger than anything else that we have in our sky. And then the moon comes up, and that's got light, and it does things, but it's not the same. Then you see all these little points of light in the sky all over. And uh, some of them are so dim you can barely see them. Some of them seem to be nice and bright. So even those are different. So God created within his creation things that are very, very different. All right? Whether it's seeds that go on the ground, come up different, flesh on all sorts of living things, or up in the sky. You can see that God did things very different. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to explain to you, it is sown in corruption. We put this old body down in the grave, and it rots away. It is raised in incorruption. When it comes up at the resurrection, it's not the same. It is sown in dishonor. We bury people because the body failed. It died. We couldn't stop it. It died. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. When the resurrection comes, we come out of the ground. He said, it'll be magnificent. Sown in weakness. That's how, why we die. We got weak, unable to continue, and we die. Raised in power. When it comes out of the ground, it is not going to die. So obviously, verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So he says there's two bodies that we know about. And the one that we have, which he calls the natural one, and we know how that thing works. It's got a lot of flaws. And then he says there's a spiritual body. There's a spiritual body. So I want you to remember that. There's a spiritual body. What's it like? It's like the one that Jesus has, and that's the only reference point we have. All right, it's like his. And uh, he says it is not, certainly not the same thing. So when you come out of that grave someday during the resurrection, you will be given back a body. 
A nice one. <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Um, and so we ask the question, all right, so we have this physical body on earth. It dies. We put it in the ground and bury it, right? And Jesus didn't come yet. The end hasn't come. So what are we in between? How about my mom and dad and my sisters and my family that's up there? Are they just ghosts floating around? I don't think so. I think they too have been given a temporary body. You're going to want me to prove that. And I'm going to say I can't prove it. But uh, uh, they have the ability to do work and to accomplish things in heaven. You don't go up to heaven and just sit on a cloud and hang around and say, hey, I'm just waiting for the return of Christ. Don't believe that for a second. They're busy up there. They're working up there, getting ready for the return of Christ. And I've told you before, and I still think it's true, that one of the things that they are doing is preparing the new Jerusalem. And uh, other things are done. Uh, lots of babies are murdered in the womb, and they go to heaven, and somebody's up there. They don't grow up just by that. They arrive as little tiny babies, and I'm hoping my mother's up there taking care of them. Somebody takes care of babies up there. And uh, somebody's building the new Jerusalem, I'm sure, because the Bible says when that comes down, and remember, uh, John said, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he gave it the dimensions of it. And I don't know if you've grasped it yet, but the dimensions of the new Jerusalem is that that city is as big as Europe. That's a big city. There's nothing we have down here now that has any comparison to it. And so they're building the new Jerusalem when it comes down, it's unbelievable. It's magnificent. And I have no doubt that saints are up there building that and doing other things too. So uh, you have to have some form of a body in heaven. There's work to be done, things to be accomplished, babies to hold. Okay? Uh, but there will come a day when that will change, and we'll get to that in a minute. All right? Verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that which was, that which was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural after that, which is spiritual. The first man is the Lord, is, is the, of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they which also are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they also which are heavenly. And so he says the first thing had to come was this physical body we have now. Just the way God planned it. Here's this physical body. I'm going to give it to you. In the beginning, it lived a thousand years. It must have been quite a body. The original plan of God was to put us down here and let us live and eventually just go up to heaven and not die. But through Adam, death came into the world. And so when death came, you gave these people 
900 years, they got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. All right, when uh, after death entered into the human race. And so God finally said, I looked over the whole earth, the entire population of the earth, and there's only one man left who believed in me, Noah. Well, Noah lived to be six, seven, eight hundred years old. He was the last of that long living thing. But when God wiped out the human race with the flood, he said, these people, the longer you give them, the worse they get. And so they think they got forever. They think, well, we're going to live forever, just keep doing what we want. So we're going to shorten up the human lifespan. And so he put it down to 70. If you live healthy and well, you'll live to be 80. And that's what the Bible has said is a general uh, thing. Some people are blessed to live a little longer. And uh, some people live a little longer and they're not blessed, but this physical body wears out. And we have a limited amount of time to respond to God in the physical body. He didn't give us 200 years, 400 years. He says, here, he'll give you 70 or 80 years. You can, if I let you go beyond that, you'll get harder and harder and harder. That's why I got rid of the first part of the human race and saved Noah. So uh, we're down to that. We're given this body. It works for a while real good. It wears out. doesn't work as good. And then we come to the end. And God said, okay, you decide. What do you want? All right? You will not have the heavenly body first. Later on, that will come. 49. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So uh, uh, Genesis says we were made in God's image. So there's something about us that is like God. It is probably having a form and having a spirit and a soul. All right, so we have an intellect like God, and we have a life force like God, and we have a form that we use that's like God. So we were created in that image. That's why the animals aren't, because they don't have the same powers that we do of intellect. They operate by instinct, not by intellect. He says, someday you'll bear the image of the heavenly. Someday you'll have a new body, a new spirit, and a wonderful sense of who you are. 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So if you think that this body is going on up into heaven, no, it's not. It's going to be something much better. Here's when it happens. Behold, I show you a mystery. And there it is. He got a mystery. Something that nobody ever heard of. Where did he get it? Got it straight from God. God said, hey, Paul, I'll show you what's going to happen. So here's the mystery that I haven't told anybody yet. I'm telling you first, and then you can tell other people. We shall not all sleep. That is, we, not everybody's going to die, but we shall all be changed. So he says, when Christ comes, there will still be Christians who are alive. It didn't die yet. 
right? Now, I don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, nobody knows when. And when people uh, say, it's going to be here, we had somebody here once that said, oh, it's going to be uh, in November. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen. But he says, at the moment when the end comes, and Jesus comes, if people on the earth will still be alive. He says, but not everybody's going to die before that. But we shall all be changed. So dead or alive, we change. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So it'll be a fantastic moment. Paul explains it in another passage. And he says, you'll hear the trumpet sound, and all of a sudden the dead people will rise up and have that new body. And as you're standing there and you blink your eye, before you finish blinking, you will have that new body. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of power that can say, okay, let's see, we got how many, maybe there's five million Christians. Bing, there you go. You're all set. That's a lot of power. They understand we're dealing with a God has a tremendous amount of power. 53, for this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All right, there is no more dying. We change if we've already died, our bodies come back up out of the ground. And if we haven't died yet, we're changed in an instant. And we're told we'll go up and meet all together in the air. What a, what a meeting. What a day that'll be. And really, if you can stop and shut your mouth and think about that for a while, it's pretty overwhelming to be part of such a, a magnificent display of power that God will exert over the earth. And he says, when that happens, death is gone. There's no more death. 55, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Okay, death, what happened to you? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. All right, so uh, death... Power lied in sin. So if, if we sinned, then we were going to die, he said. And so how do we know how bad sin is? Well, God made a law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not uh, have other gods before me. He made a law. And so we say, well, how do we know I've sin is so bad? Here's how. It's a list of what you shouldn't be doing. So it's pretty clear, all right, that sin was there and you shouldn't be doing it. But 57, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's coming a day when we shall not die anymore. And we will live forever in a body that God has made because he's capable 
of making entirely different bodies, I often wonder if we'll look the same. And I think, yeah, okay, maybe my hair will be filled back in. All right, possible, you know, and it'll be red. It's possible because I do think that our identities don't get lost in all of that. And so uh, what has happened to us through age and through going through that process of, of uh, getting old, those things are wiped out. And so if you can imagine yourself at 30 years old, uh, I think that's what we'll look like again. Only obviously a different kind of body, but I think we'll retain identity because uh, the Bible says you will know as you are known. So somebody look and say, I know you. And say, yeah, I know you too. I know him. I know her. I know these people. Why? You think they're all going to look like angels or something? No. But there is an interesting thing that when we see angels, they're all young. And we get descriptions of them at the resurrection of Christ. And they say, we saw two young men there. Well, they were angels. You know how old they are? Well, they're probably 10,000, maybe longer, years old. And they look young. And so I always say when somebody dies through old age and the effects that it brings, okay, if you want to think about them now that they've died, you got to go back to when they're 30. I watched my mother shrink up and shrink up and shrink up. She couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. Finally, she couldn't eat. She couldn't do anything. And she looked like a skeleton laying in bed and finally died. And I said to people, well, I remember her at 30, and that's what she is now. She's young again because the effects of aging are gone. And that's a lot to look forward to. Some days I kind of want to be 30 again when I'm cutting wood, you know. So, man, I'd like to do that again. Give me another crack at that. Well, you'll have another crack at it, and then you'll never grow old again. There's an old song, never grow old, never grow old. We're in a land where we never grow old. So that's a lot to say, isn't it? As we look at this passage, and we get thoroughly convinced that, yeah, this is coming. Paul is telling us, and he finally opens up a mystery. He says, I'll tell you something that you never heard before. Uh, it'll be a trumpet sound, and you'll blink your eyes, and you'll be somebody new. Just like that. Or you'll be up in heaven in that temporary body that you have there, and suddenly, zoom, you're changed. And come on, Jesus, we're all going down to earth. Down they come. And we meet in the air. Wow. Uh, It sounds so spectacular that I think to myself, who can ever say, eh, it's not worth it? Who can say, ah, this following God stuff? Get it in your head is the best thing you ever imagined. And it's more than you imagine. As Paul would write in another place, I have not seen, nor ear heard, 
neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for those that love him. And so with all this that we can talk about, we know that's coming, and Paul says, those things I wasn't allowed to say, oh, you haven't imagined what heaven's going to be. Your mind can't grasp it. And I can kind of dream pretty good. I can think a lot of good things that are going to happen. He said, but when you see it, he says, you will realize I never imagined it could be so. That's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. That's why death to us is not a burden. For heaven's sake, it's it's glorious. It's a glorious thing. And so no need to fear it. Now, with all that information, how should we behave? And it's very different from what you think. 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So consider all the things that God's done. Sent his son, redeemed the earth, promised us this marvelous new body and a chance to resurrect from the dead. He says, you got all that. So now as you got it in your mind, what should you do? Number one, be steadfast. Don't be wavering. Don't be wavering. Don't be saying, oh, I don't know, it's so hard to serve the Lord. Don't say that. Don't say, be steadfast. I'm going to do it every day. Unmovable. I like that's a good word. Be unmovable. That is, you can't convince me that serving God is a mistake. Nothing you could do could change my mind. You could say, Eric, we'll throw you out here on your ear, and I'd say, it's okay. I'm okay, because I'm going to serve the Lord no matter what. I'm going to be steadfast, unmovable. I will not be persuaded otherwise that serving God is the best possible thing that you can do. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. We've got to fill our lives up with serving God. That was a time for me when that thought came into question. And I said, what should I do with my life? And I had a Bible study and there were people in it that were saying, we got to have a church. And that meant I had to be the pastor. And I thought to myself, I don't really want to be a pastor. I mean, I've seen those guys get beat up and knocked around and abused. And I said, why would I ever want to do that? I don't want to do that. And then the question came up, are you willing to serve me or not? Are you in or not? And I remember I was throwing a log in my fire in the basement and wrestling in my mind for several weeks. And then I threw the log in and I said, I'm in, just like that. Burn me up, use me up, I'm in, let's go. And that day I gave away every weekend for the rest of my life. Thank God that he convinced me that this is what you need to do. You need to serve the Lord with all your heart and get in it and don't be moved. 
Don't let anybody persuade you. Why? For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If you're going to work for me, I'm going to make it work. There's a thing over on the wall over there of people who have died and gone to heaven. And I think about that often. There's people in heaven because of East Shelby Church. We played a role in that. And we helped those people to learn about Christ and so that when they died, they were at peace. They were at rest. And they could die in peace. And so, yeah, it's very much useful. Nothing we do for God is in vain. And so when we're working on a day like old-fashioned day, and you're sweating and you're tired and you're exhausted, and oh my goodness, did you see the lady that's been here ever since? Did you see her? Did you meet her yet? Better meet her as part of your reward. She sits right in that pew there. Come ever since old-fashioned day. She says, I have a church, but I seem to want to come here. That's God, because your labor's not in vain. It's God working and God doing things. And so, uh, what a high note he ends with. He said, if all these things are true... Let's get to work. Let's serve the Lord, and it'll be worth every penny. And so, chapter 15, like I said, the most preached from book, you'll hear it all over on Easter Sunday uh, being preached, because it's describing the resurrection of Christ, teaching us about it. I have never preached it, as I like the story of Jesus, right from John and Matthew and Mark. Luke, but uh, certainly a great passage and meant to teach us about Christ. Next week we go on to chapter 16, and 16 is he's tying up loose ends. We get some very unusual things that he says, and uh, we ought to learn more from those as we go on. Thank you.